Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. He said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. In a year that has seen Brexit and the rise of Trump, we examine some of the reasons for frustration with the status quo and metropolitan elites. Today, I'm joined by Alice Thwaite, the founder and editor of the Echo Chamber. Hello, Alice. Hi there. Hi. Um, what is going on? It's 2016. Everything's breathless. Um, news is happening every second. Um... Have you got a global theory of what's going on? It's a very, very big question. A lot of people are pointing at effects right now in politics and they're looking at actions that people are taking, like, you know, why did people vote for Brexit? Um, why are people getting behind Donald Trump? Um, we're the two big ones, definitely in the UK and the US. But there are bigger problems as well. So in Germany right now, you've got the rise of the right as well. It is generally a Western theme that's going on and... My, my take on it right now and what I'm trying to do with the Echo Chamber Club is that this is actually a, a kind of a crisis of access to information. Um, it's not necessarily information itself, um, because information itself has always um, been a bit dubious. I mean, you can look through history and think about lots of things that people have believed that aren't necessarily true. But what is more true is that a lot of the proportion of the culture believed them. Um, so you look at religious movements, scientific movements, and a huge majority of people were on board with that mistruth, that information that was available to them. So they were able to create a culture around it. Whereas today, um, and, and I'm going to use the word the echo chamber, but also it's been called the filter bubble. Um, there are a lot of very niche um, minority groups who don't spend that much time in the physical world anymore. So don't tend to interact and instead, they just see information that's presented to them online. Um, so you might have come across the idea that um, the Facebook algorithm um, mm. personalizes information that's direct for you. So, And that's not based on truth at all. That's based on engagement. So if you like loads of baby photos, you'll see loads of baby photos appear in your timeline. 
But equally, the Facebook algorithm is is very complex. It's it's not something that's particularly simple. So they'll notice that if a lot of your friends are liking certain things, um, particular political um, ideologies or viewpoints, then they will also present that kind of information to you as well. Um, and that doesn't just happen in your own filter bubble. That doesn't only happen in your own community. It's happening in many separate communities around the world. And it basically means that no one really understands why um, other communities think the way that they do. And when that happens and that lack of empathy happens, um, people get very angry with each other because there is just no comparison there. Um, there are also words that have completely different meanings in different contexts. Um, if I can think of an example right now, but I mean, liberal and conservative is a, is a great example. Also, um, if, if, if you call someone religious, for example, um, let's just take a very extreme example there. The word religious for me and you probably means something entirely different for the people in Syria. Mm. Um, and when people then take words at face value and believe that they have a, a complete meaning and a, a kind of almost an a priori meaning, so a, um, a, a, a meaning that can't be adapted and is, is uniform across all communities, then, then we are going to misunderstand each other. Um, and that's apparent where um, potentially... Um, metropolitans are calling people who voted Brexit racist without fully understanding what immigration might mean to them. Um, and, and conversely, people who are in rural um, villages and rural towns believe that metropolitans have all the money and that they bailed them out without realising that actually life is a lot better in rural communities in the UK than it is in um, cities. Um, so that's 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 kind of all about access to information rather than information itself, because there are these walls that have been built up around us. That means it's very difficult for us to reach out and, and find out what's going on because we can't see that we're stuck in a digital world. Um, so a, a really good book on that is 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 called um, The Filter Bubble by Eli Pariser, which if you're interested, I would definitely take a look at and read. Um, I, I'm going to I'm going to order it on Amazon tomorrow. Yeah. which is uh, probably part of the problem the fact that you're recommending that that i read this book somebody who um i've connected to digitally mark zuckerberg a journalist was asking him a question about the news feed and the journalist was asking him you know why is this so important and zuckerberg said a squirrel dying in your front yard may be more relevant to your interests right now than people dying in africa and I want to talk about what a web based on that idea of relevance might look like. So when I was growing up in a, in a really rural area in Maine, you know, the internet meant something very different to me. It, it meant uh, a connection to the world. It meant something that would connect us all together. And I, I was sure that it was going to be great for democracy and for our society. But there's this kind of shift in how information is flowing online. And if we don't pay attention to it, it could be a real problem. So I first noticed this uh, in a place I spend a lot of time, my Facebook page. I'm progressive politically, big surprise, but I've always uh, you know, gone out of my way to meet conservatives. I like hearing what they're thinking about. I like seeing what they link to. I like learning a thing or two. And so I was kind of surprised when I noticed one day that the conservatives had disappeared from my Facebook feed. And uh, what it turned out was going on was that Facebook was looking at which links I clicked on. And it was noticing that actually I was clicking more on my liberal friends' links than on my conservative friends' links. It had edited them out. 
So are you saying then that we need to slightly rewind, go back to a more analog age, an age where we had a common social space, where we we bumped into people that thought slightly differently from us, but we still had commonality with them to understand the viewpoints of others? It's really interesting when people talk about the words go back, um, because I don't think we can go back now. it's more about trying to find where, you know, educate people about what technologies are doing and show people forums where they might not necessarily participate because it's very easy to get angry online and therefore the polarization happens more. Um, but to just thoroughly understand why other people believe the way that they do. Um, so it might mean that you you make a concerted effort to go to sports games, sports matches, um, you know just spend a little bit more time in coffee shops drinking in pubs that you wouldn't necessarily go to but also that's a very difficult thing to tell people to do because we're very time poor um i so before before i i um i uh, started the echo chamber club i worked for a company called chronicle which is is trying to use rss and allow people to sorry rss is a, a form of um it's kind of a way of reading web pages so they're mm. very easily searchable. Um, so using RSS so that people can create their own algorithms and their own filters so that they can kind of get out of that filter bubble. Um, so we tried to look at the technology angle for a while. And I, I guess my my approach was then people don't have the time necessarily to do that kind of thing. So how about I identify where a filter bubble is, um, a very easy one for me, being very much part of the Liberal Metropolitan Echo Chamber filter bubble, is to target um, there, find out what the majority of people think, which I can do fairly simply through trending news, and then go out of my way to find um, ideas that contradict that. So, um, for example, why are we so anti-Burka? Can I find someone who's pro-Burka who might change people's, not change people's minds, but challenge their ideas? Um, so it, when when people say should we go back i don't think we can it's more about being aware of the problem and trying to figure out how we solve that problem um and and that's that's kind of a work in progress definitely um and there are people like me who are trying to do things but it's also about um other people recognizing that that might be something they need to do as well okay so you've obviously thought a little bit about this <laughs> let, let, let's go back let's go back a little step um tell us a little bit of something about you um where did you study what did you study um for you to arrive at setting up the echo chamber sure so um i start i studied philosophy at cambridge at jesus college um and it is an incredible subject um but I wasn't so good at it, I would say. <laughs> um, but um, what did you get? Whether or not, I, well, I, well, I, I, I was quite ill actually. I got a two one, but I got I got mumps in my finals. But I did actually um, uh, specialise in something called history and philosophy of science, which is amazing. It's all about the theory of ideas. And one thing that really did hammer home was the subjectivity of science. Why do we choose to pursue ideas that work for us? Um, what is a history of ideas? What is a theory of knowledge? Um, and through that as well, I was very interested in media. So um, I worked very closely with the guys who set up the tab, for instance, which was an interesting, well, it's still an interesting business trying to bring um, tabloid news to students. Um, I myself worked on a project called Vivid magazine, which um, received a lot of media because, again, it was kind of a contrarian publication. It was anti um, establishment <laughs> in a very student way at the time. And 
and at that point, it was, you know, 2008, 2009, we were discussing the issues of monetization of media. So um, media was going through this digital revolution. The Times was just about to put their paywall on. And it was very, very clear that without money, you couldn't necessarily get great information. Um, but then Twitter blew up. Facebook started really pursuing their algorithm and people kind of forgot about the monetization problem. But that's now really come into force in the last two years where it's very clear that the organizations who um, who get the most traffic, like the Mail Online, actually don't tell the truth at all. They just kind of tell, use keywords that people are going to search for. Anyway, that's that's jumping on a bit. But then straight after university, I, I went into sales for a bit. I did a bit of a stint in film and worked as a vacation manager. But then I worked at a company called Raconteur and Raconteur produced the B2B special reports in the Times newspaper. Um, and that was very good in terms of learning how to curate information, learning how people read stories, learning how print works, learning how digital works, um, learning about things like entry points, so um, design principles, what attracts people to information. And, and, and because this kind of clickbait now sells on an article by article basis, you have to make sure that every single article is optimized for engagement. Whereas before people pretty much bought a book they, they decided that they liked the times the guardian the independent the new statesman and they and they just took everything that was in that book so there could be articles that were a bit more clickbaity so the page three and um, the cover story but inside you could then get real investigative journalism whereas now you just can't do that because articles have to sell themselves on an individual basis um, and that was kind of coming through when I was working at raconteur and the digital revolution was around and people were talking about the death of print and all this sort of thing um, and then from there, I was, I was I, especially I was very much in technology publications and I um, started working at Chronicle. And here I am now um, pursuing the Echo Chamber Club um, as a as a kind of a business model. But also, I, you know, every everyone starts off um, a business because they believe it has social, you know, it, it's going to contribute towards social good. And that's and that's very much what I'm trying to do as well. Um, so my background is kind of media philosophy, theory of knowledge. Um, and a little bit of tech, which I suppose gives me the best possible background in being able to pursue something like this. Um, but ultimately, it's just the fact that I give it the time to go out and find contributors and also to try and identify where these echo chambers are, which isn't an exact science, I say, but um, it's, um, I suppose I'm kind of further along it than a lot of other people just by the amount of time I spent doing it. That was uh, pretty full and comprehensive. Uh, <laughs> you. you might have to edit that. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I remember um, back in 1996, I was traveling. Um, it's my first time in America. I was traveling okay. with my grandfather in a car. He lived just. He lived in New Orleans, and we were traveling somewhere to get something. I forget what. And there was this guy on the radio who was. He was just bellowing at the top of his voice saying that the president was a fraud um, he was a liar and I remember being absolutely entertained it yeah. was only about 10 years afterwards I realized I was listening to Rush Limbaugh I had no idea who he was and it was <laughs> only round about the 2008 election in America that I you know kind of put two and two together and thought I was listening to Rush Limbaugh but I was entertained do you think part of the problem at the moment is that we always want to be entertained or shocked by by the news we don't actually want to be informed that we want there to be some level 
of um, showmanship to the delivery of news or to facts. And that's actually part of this problem, not just the echo chamber in and of itself, but it's how we're consuming news and information. I wish that I could sit here and tell you that I, without question, think the polls are rigged. I have thought so in previous elections. In 2000, I remember I was uh, being interviewed on Fox, and it was a week or two before the presidential election. The polling data at the time had Al Gore up three or four points. And I remember telling Paul, I don't believe it. I, I just thought that, that, that doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. I, I didn't think there was that much love associated with the Clinton administration. Bush had raced through the Republican primaries. He had raced through the fundraising. He'd come out of nowhere and shocked everybody, if you recall, much like Trump has. That Bush finally did change those polls. They tightened as we got to the closer to the election. I was on that show two weeks out. And then over the weekend, we got the Bush DUI story that was released. And it almost lost Bush the election. So it's not necessarily we want to be entertained. We want these things. It's more where our reactions are. So we react more to these, this entertainment. We react more to show business. And reactions and engagement sell these days. Because if you react to something, you will share it. You will post it on Twitter. It will get more views. You can sell more advertising. So the brightest minds at the moment are not pursuing the truth anymore in kind of the, you know, a Kantian type of duty. What they're pursuing is engagement. We don't want this. You hear this time and time again. You, you, you know, you go out to dinner parties where people don't have their phone switched on and they lament it. But they are part of the problem because they can't help it. They can't help having these cheap thrills. They can't help being shocked. Um, and it, it's, you know, people have been having these conversations for decades as well. I mean, charities have been preying on people. Well, preying might be the wrong word here. But, you know, you think about the awful images that you quite often see in public transport. Um, that's not something that people necessarily want, but it's something that sells and gets a reaction. Um, so it's not necessarily that we want it. It's um, it's that we react to it. And again, you can't really change that. That's going to be very difficult to change because, um that reaction need only last 30 seconds and you post it on Facebook and um, it's one. It, it's very difficult to take a step back there. Um, what, what you said to me seems to be pretty much um, how I feel about things like Breitbart and definitely someone like Milo Yiannopoulos, Nero. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. somebody who's obviously furiously bright, but just wants to... He's at the same time as me. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot of mutual friends, unfortunately. <laughs> He does, he does want to just create a reaction. And he's incredibly skilled with language so that you can get somewhat slightly lost on the vacuousness of a point that he's trying to make. But he doesn't have to make for entertaining, watching or listening. So I suppose yeah. my question is, is with the rise of things like Breitbart uh, fueling the Trump campaign and this... Um, uh, this groundswell of kind of populist alt-right um, anger mm-hmm. is it all is it fueled by really an ideology an ideology or is it most part entertainment showmanship barnum barnum stuff and and if so um where is the west where is the left's equivalent right um the alt-right is a, a 
a very, very interesting um, section of political ideology right now. Um, and, and the thing is, is that the alt-right and what Milo Yiannopoulos and Breitbart stand for is actually, uh, you know, it's, it's made up of you know many different viewpoints. So you've got the trolls who are part of that, but you also have the reactionaries and the neo-reactionaries, and you have many different kind of subsets that it's very difficult to access what they believe online. Um, and you mentioned entertainment there. Um, I mean, I... I personally, when I read media, particularly in, you know, The Guardian and The Independent, too, quite often see similar sort of tactics being used in those print publications, not print publications, but those publications as Breitbart and as what Milo Yiannopoulos is saying. I mean, you contrast you know, someone like Owen Jones with Milo Yiannopoulos and they have completely different ideas, but they do use the same sort of rhetoric. Um, so it's it, it's very difficult to kind of put it down to something like that. And it's... Um, it's something that, that potentially could take a little bit more study. Um, the truth is with the alt-right is there's this amazing blog. Um, it's written by someone called Scott Alexander. He's in the States. It's called Slate Star Codex. Um, I don't know if you've you've come across it, but he writes about neo-reactionaries, which is something that has been associated with the likes of Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. Um, so tech superstars who are incredibly logical are trying to save the world. Um, but also have quite, um, I would say, quite closeted views on politics in the same way that you might associate, like Tom Cruise being a Scientologist. It might surprise you to hear that people like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel are being associated with the alt-right and with neo-reactionary um, philosophy. Um, and it is a philosophy. It's not just entertainment. It's based on the idea that um, the world is getting worse. And it's based on the idea that um, we're getting health, we're getting unhealthy, we're losing time, um, we're not being as productive. The days that we spent were miserable, suicides increasing, crime is increasing, um, all these type of things. And they and they point at these statistics and they say, well, what's the common denominator here? And they kind of say, well, actually liberalism and progressivism has been the dominant thought um, throughout human history. I mean, you, you look over the last 100 years, you know, feminism has, has increased hugely. Um, LBGTQ, um, you know, there's huge, um, huge strides being taken there. And you might say it's not far enough. But the point is, you look at where we were 100 years ago, and it's incredible the cultural change that's gone on. Um, people are talking about suicide rates the whole time. The statistics they tend to take are from the last 10 years or so, as opposed to looking at the last 200 years, where, again, suicide rates have gone down enormously. Um, and if people are constantly pointing to these stats about, well, actually, um, if the world is getting worse, what's what's the common denominator there? And, and point at something like liberalism or progressivism, um, then it's very easy to think, OK, well, what worked before? Um, and that is some sort of you know, maybe like a philosopher king or a benevolent dictator or a dictator of any sort whatsoever, some sort of monarchy. And that's kind of where the neo-reactionary thought is coming from. And you read this stuff and you think, wow, this is not stupid. These aren't just trolls who are um, pushing people who are being incredibly awful to people like Leslie Jones on Twitter, which was one of the most horrific things I've seen. Um, they belong to this wider group, which does have a, a real philosophy. Um, and I, I, it, I would, again, encourage you to read that post on, on Slate Star Codex, um, which is written by Scott Alexander, which is the best um, um, 
summary of neo-reactionary that I've seen, neo-reactionary thought, and um, it will take you about an hour to read and then you'll want to read it again. When you when you realise that there are people out there who genuinely believe the world is worse than it was 50 years ago, if you genuinely believe that, then you're going to want to change things. And this rhetoric is being pushed by the right, the left and the centre. It's people's favourite thing to do is to moan, um, is to wonder why the world isn't better than it actually is and you kind of look even back at um the start of buddhism no matter what how much they had they never thought they had enough um so this is kind of a a part of human existence and a part of human thought and if you are intelligent about that then you'll start thinking well how do we change that and how do we make that better um so it's kind of up to people who are liberal and who are progressive to recognize the strides that are being made and push that out in the media a little bit more and discuss that a lot more and really appreciate the good things that are happening um, in today's society. Um, Because if more young people come up through the ranks and see that there are a lot of people who are a lot happier about the state of the world now than even 10 years ago, despite, you know, what's happened since 2008, um, then they're less likely to get pulled into places like 4chan or Reddit or these kind of gamers gate channels who are offering a genuinely radical solution to um, today's problems. Um, So no, it's not just entertainment, unfortunately. Um, It's not just people who are trolling. There is a substantial basis um, to what they are saying. And although the trolls might not have read neo-reactionary thoughts, um, they are part of a canon which has a a couple of legs. And I personally think we need to take that seriously. And I think we should start thinking about how we portray a more positive picture of the world today compared to the past and actually start showing statistics from the last 100 years rather than the last five years, which is is typically what organisations tend to do. Interestingly, um, you talk about um, that there is a a kind of overarching, compelling political narrative to this um, alt-right stuff. But I'm always kind of struck by how articulate and how right the leaders and the forebears of 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 this thought are but how to me it seems to it almost seems to be that they have a certain amount of disdain for a lot of the of the followers and interesting you you talked about uh yananopoulos and also peter Thiel. um Mm. these are two gay prominently gay men i know Mm -hmm. peter Thiel was was forced to come out but Mm -hmm. um he's now out and what underlies a lot of uh, right-wing um, ideology is vehement, you know, anti-homosexual, LGBTQ um, kind of ideology. So I'm kind of always surprised on how that kind of squares up, how that gets um, kind of dismissed. Because if you ever do dip your foot into any of those chat groups, um, the word faggot comes up. Yeah, alarming rapidity. So, um, for me, I can't understand um, the the articulateness and the um, of of the leaders, and then uh, with the followers. Is, is that just me, or is there actually um, a disconnect? Um, there is definitely a disconnect. Um, but the only thing that I can say is that there is a disconnect in in metropolitan ideology as well. Um, so just by pointing at something that doesn't quite add up and, and you're right, it doesn't add up. There, are, there is inconsistencies in the thought. I mean, if you look at Neonopolis's speech, which was about, um, 
I'm laughing because it was so ridiculous. Um, when he came out and he was like, I support Trump because um, Muslims hate gays and Donald Trump is against Muslims. You kind of go, you know, what? <laughs> you probably already know that the American media is constitutionally left wing. What you might not know is just how stupid they are. Today, yet again, Daddy, the God Emperor, Donald Trump. <laughs> he made them all tune into a rally where he said he was going to be talking about birtherism. And I, I think the message that he was sending was, it was he was going to maybe address the subject of whether Hillary or someone close to Hillary was responsible for spreading rumors that Obama was not born in the United States. And instead, Donald Trump delivers 20 minutes of veterans saying how awesome he is, saying they can't wait for him to be president. Beautiful, brilliant troll. But the best thing about the troll is that it isn't even remotely the first time Donald Trump has done this to the media. Donald Trump demonstrated the same contempt for the media that most of the American population has when he skipped a primary debate to go and raise $6 million for wounded veterans. Every day, Trump finds a new and imaginative way to troll the media, whether it's revoking the Washington Post's press credentials, unprecedented in the history of presidential elections, or just reminding the New York Times that they don't own him and their opinion doesn't matter very much to his voters. He held up Lindsey Graham's phone number. One thing's for sure, the mischievous, dissident, subversive spirit of Donald Trump has infected every corner of American public life. Donald Trump isn't just an existential threat to political correctness. He's also smashing the idea that the media controls elections, can shape elections, and that the New York Times and CNN have any control over the narrative anymore. Um, but kind of similar similar problems are also occurring in, in, le in liberal thoughts. Um, so there are a lot of um, minority groups right now. So you look at um, what's happening in the Labour Party right now with... Um, people saying the Jews um, had a part to play in slavery. And these are kind of two ideologies where people are trying to recognise what um, Britain did for slavery, but also recognise the role the West has had to play in undermining um, Jews. And they both had horrific histories. Um, but the truth is, is that no group is, is perfect. And um, that ideology also doesn't make sense as well. That's very difficult to bring together, is how do you promote both of these groups um, so Africans and and, um, and the Jews without them also coming to blows and then and then people just sitting there going I'm not really sure how to handle this so that's also something that could be pointed out and said well that's like an inconsistency there does it mean that we can't work through it I mean but, we but I suppose can. though the, the difference for me lo looking at that is one you're having a, a debate and an interpretation on history yeah and that can go, and and you said earlier on, you know, the kind of is no truth, right? But you are talking about history. Whereas right here and now, one of the foremost uh, groups against uh, the progression and the equalisation of rights towards uh, gay citizens would be extreme right wing groups. You don't find that on the left. So it's just interesting that some of the individuals who are the, the greatest spokesmen for uh, this new um, alt-right thought just happened to be gay. Two two prominent examples. So, so whereas that to me is a live, living example of um, a disconnect. But I think you are right though um, that there is inconsistencies and blind spots with um, metropolitan elite thinking, and the very fact that. Um, I live uh, half of my year in San Francisco, you live in Berlin, um, and neither of us uh, are from those places, uh, and we feel comfortable doing that, 
um, we have a worldview which is kind of informed by that. And, and that in and of itself um, is not the norm, some might say, elitist. Yes, yes, that's definitely the case. I mean, how do we promote globalisation to people who have never experienced the benefits of it? Um, mm. Well, no, the, the, the thing is, is that-, that, that they have. But um, so one of the benefits of globalisation is the fact that we can have um, great uh, computers in our pockets. They're called smartphones. We have these uh, 50, 60 inch TVs on our walls, which are literally paper thin. That's one of the benefits of, of globalization. But I think for um, a lot of communities, what they don't have is the stability, whether it's um, economic or cultural, that their forebears had. And I know you made a very good and persuasive point of saying that, you know, we can't always look to the past. But um, if I am a white working class male and I happen to be 30 and I live in then insert name of Northern Milltown, mm-hmm. my prospects, my economic prospects were not what my father's or definitely not what my grandfather's were, whereby my grandfather pretty much knew uh, that he didn't have to Uh, gain a higher education to be able to have a life where he could support his family relatively comfortably he still had to work but he didn't need career advancement his career wasn't actually um, the sole means whereby he needed to go up a greasy pole he could kind of just about do the same job for maybe 40 years and have enough to bring up his family in, in relative comfortableness, stress the word relative. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not the case anymore. You know, what we've lost is that. So I kind of do understand if you say to somebody, well, you have a, you have a smartphone, you've got a, an iPhone, you've got a Samsung, and hopefully the thing doesn't you know, explode and burn in your pocket. Um, you have a great, a great TV. But Ultimately, what this person is talking about is economic insecurity. And then um, they cast around, or they're told to cast around for uh, reasons for this. And it's very easy to blame uh, the new immigrants or the people that don't look like you, don't think like you. And then you rail against, um, you know, people that seemingly can kind of jet around the world and don't have a life that's kind of like yours. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing is, is what we're doing right now is we, we, we can only speculate on it, which I think mm. is, is the crucial part here is that we don't necessarily have the answers. And the people who do have the answers don't can't necessarily express them away to us, which we will then understand, which is which is kind of what I'm getting when I'm listening to James O'Brien's LBC mm. um, show. And he has these people coming on who are speaking to Brexit and he speaks to them in, in a completely different language. Um, and in a way that they can't even reply and then they are further demeaned. I recently went self-employed a couple of years ago. Um, so it was a big thing, voting Brexit. Um, just, so, you know, so we control our own laws. I mean... You know, you, you know what I do now, don't you? What's that? I, I ask you which law it is you're really looking forward to not having to obey anymore. Yeah, any. Yeah, any. any. It's, yeah, it's, so give me one. The, um, the shape of your bananas. <laughs> it's not funny, <laughs> uh, is it? 
Well, it, it, it's, it's not. The, pound, um, the pound's so. at the lowest it's been since 1985, and, and, and you just said any law, and I'm just asking you to name one. We, we both know that bananas was a lie made up by Boris Johnson. Remind me which side he was on during the Leave campaign? So what, what is the law, Ashley? Because you didn't vote. You knew you were going to take short-term economic damage. You knew that all your customers would do as a, as a newly formed electrician company. Every single customer in yep. the country potentially is going to be worse off than they were before the vote. So I'm just wondering what yep. those laws are that you won't have to obey anymore that made you vote for this short-term economic hit. Well, it wasn't the laws which was the main, which was the main reason. What's the, just the main reason reasons. you gave me, wasn't it, a minute ago? Yeah, sorry. It's, there's, there's, so many, there's many Can reasons. you name one yet? There's, um, I wouldn't be able to, no. My, my, my interpretation of this, and it is just an interpretation, is that it is a supply and demand thing. It's like the more, the more supply there is for people who are able to do low-skilled jobs, the less those people are going to be paid for it, um, the less um, kind of job security those people can command. And um, I, I mean, I, in some ways, I am going to bring personal experience into this, but um, my father came from one of those um, very impoverished towns in, 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 in Yorkshire. It's beautiful up there, but it, it's Bentham, um, which is near a place called Cecil. Mm -hmm. And half of my family is still up there as well. Um, and it, I mean, the thing is, though, is that it's a very, very different life. It's a very different mentality. Um, they take things a lot slower. Um, they chat to people a lot more. Their communities mean a lot more to them. Whereas, you know, when you're in cities, people talk about it all the time, but you don't tend to know who your neighbours are. Um, so that kind of the people who surround you, directly surround you, have a huge influence on on your um, on your life. And that's one thing that I always take away from whenever I go and visit um, um, my grandpa and um, my aunts and my cousins up there is just how everyone knows each other and how everyone does support each other. And I suppose when that support mechanism, so when people do lose their jobs and they aren't able to support each other even more, and then they're not able to communicate with people who are in their, um, in, in new in their communities, it, it kind of um, provides a bit of, dis it's disruptive. Um, and what's more, I, I strongly believe that the more educated you are, the more language you have to express the emotions that you're feeling. So whenever I'm uh, angry, for instance, I always have to think, OK, well, what language would I use to describe how I'm feeling angry? And then you stop feeling angry because you then you've then rationalized it. Um, so these are just general points. And I don't know necessarily whether or not they join up to make a cohesive whole. Um, but I think it is up to us as people who have got a fantastic education, who have got experience of a multitude of different cultures to reach out to people who are in our immediate community, the people who we vote alongside and go, OK, well, let's try and figure out what this culture is now and how we empathize with you and how we make this better and how we make our society more equal. Um, and if and if we are able to do that, let, let's just assume that that's something that's possible to do, then then perhaps um, we're in a much better place to to create policies and to create ideas that benefit everyone rather than just the people who are in our immediate online community. Um, so there are critical differences there and it, it's very difficult to then go, they, they think this because of this. And you, I mean, we're just guessing at the end of the day. I, I'm guessing even though I, I spend you know, not, not a huge amount of time, but a couple of days a year chatting to, 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 to people in different communities. But, you know, also they're quite educated, right? Cause, cause you know, they're part of our family. So I, I'm just rambling a bit, but it's just, it's just very no, no, no. To, 
it's very difficult. I'm still trying to find answers because when, when Brexit happened, I think like you, like everyone who lived more or less in London, you kind of woke up in shock and it was incredibly shocking. Um, and people are still angry. Um, and in order to figure out what that anger is, we really need to get words to it. In order to put words to it, we need to understand what other people in our country think. And in order to understand what other people in our country think, we need to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt and take things on their own terms um, without trying to guess why it is, how they're feeling. Because, you know, we've just got, we've got no experience of it at all. Mm. I think it's interesting you made, um, you know, you touched on, on language. And if we look at the American election, so specifically, if we look at the American election, many commentators are, have looked at the language and the idioms of, of Trump and, and actually said that it's totally asymmetrical with the way that Hillary Clinton speaks. Yeah. And that actually, you, you, you literally, they literally cannot uh, debate. And then actually what she needs to do is to come down a step or two. So she actually can properly engage with him because he has the lexicon of about a twelve-year-old in, in terms of actually what he displays in terms of when he when he debates he speaks in very plain uh, black and white terms without any kind of rhetorical flourishes, mm. um, which I think somewhat goes to uh, the part of the problem in terms of what you're saying that language uh, plays a massive part i i'm incredibly struck by last week there was uh, trump and his conspiratorial uh, speech Hillary clinton meets in secret with international banks to plot the destruction of u.s sovereignty in order to enrich these global financial powers her special interest friends and her donors where he talks about international elites and he sounded as a student of history like a 1930s fascist he talked yeah. about banking elites and yeah. then the same day you had michelle obama give the most beautiful uh, masterful speech in which it had a beginning middle and end this was not just a lewd conversation this wasn't just locker room banter this was a powerful individual speaking freely and openly about sexually predatory behavior, using language so obscene that many of us were worried about our children hearing it. And to make matters worse, <laughs> it now seems very clear that this isn't an isolated incident. The shameful comments about our bodies, the disrespect of our ambitions and intellect, the belief that you can do anything you want to a woman, it's, it's frightening. Too many are treating this as just another day's headline. Yeah, be clear, this is not normal. The men that you and I know don't treat women this way. They are loving fathers who are sickened by the thought of their daughters being exposed to this kind of vicious language about women. They are husbands and brothers and sons who don't tolerate women being treated and demeaned and disrespected. It wasn't just, uh, I'm going to punch you emotionally with some words, but it was a structured speech. Whereas uh, with Trump, whether you agree with it or not, 
classically was, was, was badly put together. He went from point to point, went round and round in circles and actually used, uh, you know, word, words of a 12-year-old. And, but I, and I think kind of what I'm getting from you, it isn't just that the channels, that we have these different channels where we get our information and then we selectively pick our own facts to suit our own case, but also it is, it's the power really of words and being able to viscerally punch people in the gut with those. So if you classically have had an education, a higher education, um, you can sit down and listen to Michelle Obama and say that's masterful. You know, it, it draws on some strings. Uh, it draws on uh, the history of um, uh, Roman rhetoric, etc., and mm. Johnson and the great uh, political and rhetorical speakers of the 19th century and the 20th century. You know, it's Churchillian in, in, in places, whereas Trump comes from a simpler and I use that word advisably, a simpler yeah. place, uh, and we just completely and utterly miss each other because of that. Which, yeah. again, you know, for me, plays up the disconnect with somebody like a Yiannopoulos, because actually, he's in, whether he makes a whole load of sense, he can actually put together um, a speech and, um, and, and thought. And, and I'm still trying to understand how, how somebody who can be that bright want to follow some somebody like somebody like Donald Trump you know it just seems to be that it's a, a reaction to 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 the political system and it's this case of just like you know burning the barn down kick kicking in a door this isn't a way in any way of kind of reaching out uh, or expanding kind of wider political thought and I'm starting to ramble now yeah, I think the thing. Well, I was when when Milo Yiannopoulos was very much involved in this Leslie Jones case. I went to a couple of friends of mine who um, go to dinner with him, and I was like, "Tell me about him." <laughs> I don't get it. Kind of similar to you, um, and and they they. I was like, "Does he believe what he's saying? You know, is he a is he the Boris Johnson of the alt right?" Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 the answers that I got back were um, he. He does, on a basic level, believe it. You know, he believes these parts, but he's realised that his part to play in it is being this master exaggerator and provocateur. Like, he's always just said he's a troll. That's always what he's he's made out to be. And he's just got better and better and better at being a troll. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you take it down to that level, I mean, that might be our interpretation of him now, but he's smart enough to adapt and, and be someone else in the future as well. Um, so it, it's, he's an interest, he's a very, very interesting character, same as you. And I, I can't figure him out either other than to say that he hits on points and he is definitely someone to read. He's definitely someone to keep your eye on just to understand where the other side is coming from. And I watched hours and hours of his footage just to figure it out. Um, he was also on Reggie Yates's, you know, like Reggie Yates does these amazing yeah, documentaries these days, um, and he did one all about kind of um, feminism and anti-feminism. And Milo, Milo was on there and he had a very different persona when he was chatting to the BBC than he did when he was chatting to, you know, the Donald Trump supporters, Trump for gays conference. Um, he just gets it. He is this master of language. Um, and, I, and I think this kind of comes back to like this information access problem about the monetization problem as well, is that it, it, it doesn't pay to tell the truth these days. It pays to be engaged with. Um, that's where the money is. That's where the power is. 
it's not in the truth it's an engagement um and that and that's the problem that we've got to solve um we've got to figure out how we make the truth well not the truth um, because the truth isn't the right thing to say here but how we make boring um facts and how we make rhetoric which isn't quite so compelling or doesn't lean so much to the left or the right or isn't quite so shocking and um, how do we make that compelling how do we make people engage with that um and it's a you know it's a a problem that hopefully more and more people are going to start thinking about and hopefully more and more people will stop um you know there's plenty of things that we've said in this conversation for example that could be taken in in the wrong way um and sometimes when I put out newsletters I get um emails back saying how can you know how can you say this and just not giving me the benefit of the doubt on what I'm trying to do um because it's very rare for me to to necessarily send out a newsletter that I I believe in that I believe is the truth for instance um and it's just about when people say things who are you know moderate people take Ken Bone for instance who um whose opinions yeah. have been absolutely denounced on Reddit right now people love that story because it was someone who just seemed really nice and had a hidden past you know how about you just give everyone the benefit of the doubt how about you just recognize that everyone has messed up in some point that everyone's not used the right words at some point that you know the world was very different in 2005 and in 1995 than it was it is in 2016 so I mean that's the one thing I can say about um Trump and Hillary is that my 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 interpretation of it is that Clinton has gone down to his level. She she has really started to defame his character um, in order to win this election. That that news story and the relationship that she has with CNN has has ruined Trump's chances of becoming um, the next um, president of the United States. And that's purely because she had to go down to that level. She had to speak to people's base um, base instincts and base consciousness and kind of paint him out to be a monster. That was the only chance that she had. Um, and yes, Michelle Obama's there doing delivering this fantastic rhetoric um, and narrative in public, but that's that's the campaign really is is defamation of character. Um, so the the kind of the issue is is that perhaps we just recognise, and hopefully we will in the next five to ten years, as we have leaders who grew up on Facebook and went to university on Facebook. So the photos are going to come out and the videos are going to come out of people who are trying to make prime minister who do have these very embarrassing stories that go way beyond, you know, David Cameron once put his penis in a pig or whatever. Um, because let's let's be quite honest here, there's a lot of people, not necessarily have done that, but there's a lot of people who've got these skeletons in their closet. Um, so it is just about giving people the benefit of the doubt, being moderate, um, and also being very positive about what the future could be if we continue on this, on this path. Um, so... So we yeah. need the... We need the um the silent majority to become avengers for being moderates uh yeah if if we can if we can do that i'm not sure if that's possible but that if if that is if that is one option then definitely yeah that would be fantastic if people kind of stop going haha did you say that ken bone did this on reddit that would be embarrassing for him but i'm sure we'll get over it in an hour instead of i bet ken bones that you know you know, he loves porn and I bet he he's done this and this. And it's it's just it's just it's just ridiculous. So perhaps it is it is for the silent majority to become moderates. But I think it, it's more just kind of a cultural change. Perhaps more people need to get embarrassed and needs to get to the point where everyone has been shamed and embarrassed to the extent that it doesn't even matter anymore, um, which isn't necessarily um, the, um, the thing. Because there's John Ronson's book on. So you, you've been publicly shamed, which is really interesting in this context as well. Um 
but um that that might be one way of doing it but again I, I don't know I don't have the answers um I, I'm just working on this channel where people who want to sign up and experience different points of view can but I mean that that's tricky in itself <laughs> um so who knows um why don't you tell um our listeners where they can subscribe to the echo chamber sure so um if you go to echochamber.club then um hopefully there'll be a big orange button there that says subscribe um so that's e-c-h-o-c-h-a-m-b-e-r.club um and also you can um if you don't, if well, we, 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 we've got a Facebook group and a, and a Twitter as well, but that's probably the best way to make sure you get the views in your inbox. Fab. And tell us about the content of your latest newsletter. Oh, the latest one um, was done under a pseudonym by someone who's quite high up in, in British government right now on why Western military intervention is not necessarily all bad. Um, because since um, Tony Blair and invading Is he a neo-imperialist? Is he a neo-imperialist? Uh... I don't know how I'd describe his political views, actually. Um, I haven't actually spoken to him too much about what his political views are. You know um, what, I, I, I think it's interesting that um, there's been two instances in the last, what, 20 years where there's been Western military intervention, which has been, in inverted commas, successful. Um, Serbia... Yeah. Uh, Bill Clinton went in there after the EU floundered around and basically sorted it out. Yeah. Tony Blair going into Sierra Leone, he sorted yeah. it out. Yeah. Those two, are two examples that we two gave. stunning yeah. successes which never get talked about. They never get talked about by uh, the coalition, the coalition of victors. Yeah. Um, we we look at Tony Blair and we go disaster Iraq yeah and we look at we look at Clinton and here was an American president defending ostensibly Muslims yeah yeah and it's it is it is interesting the other example that was given was also the first Gulf War so the way that um, when Iraq invaded Kuwait um, that you know we went in there and we we listened um, um, to the calls for help and we and we kind of stopped that invasion happening um, my, my knowledge in this kind of area isn't isn't up to scratch, but yeah, those those are two very good examples plus another of where Western intervention has worked. Um, and and like you say, th- those examples they were from 1993 to 2001, and we've had a pretty bad run of it for 15 years. But equally, we haven't really done much since um, since the Iraq War. I mean, that's that's a dubious thing to say, <laughs> and I appreciate that that can be contested that point. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that um, it is important to note that when we went into the Iraq war, there was a history of success behind us. And now we've, we're faced with this threat from ISIS. Um, it's important to balance that that view. And again, look at what the history has been over perhaps 100 years rather than perhaps over the last 15. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, the problem of, of what's going on I, in, in, in Syria right now is huge. <laughs> I, I jumped in and derailed you. You were telling me uh, you were telling us about your, about your newsletter. So you've got um, somebody high up in the British government. You've got friends in high places. Um, what else have you got <laughs> in the newsletter? Um, so that was the last one. Um, what else have we done? We've done we've done all sorts of things. So we've got when Western military intervention works. Sometimes we fact check. So um, when the Burkini. Um, 
news story hit about that woman um, being on the beach, I, I did a, I did quite a lot of fact checking there, and it really came about because the Guardian published this article on Tuesday, on the Tuesday of that week, and they printed photographs and they talked about, you know, photographs have emerged of this, that, and the other, and then they move on to another story without making it particularly clear and kind of attributing the source back to a French media source. Whereas actually, those photographs came direct from a Daily Mail story that was printed on that Monday evening. By Friday evening, the Daily Mail had then published another story which had said, oh, it turns out that those photographs might have been staged and blamed their kind of photographer for it who has a private company. So basically, the Daily Mail came out and said, we staged those photographs. The Guardian, because they had not properly sourced their piece, made everyone believe that these photographs had came from come from the French media, right? Then BuzzFeed got hold of it. Then, you know, all of these massive outlets got hold of it and it just blew up. And you look at the French media at this point. I mean, how many terrorist attacks have happened in France over the last three years? It, it must be terrifying to be French right now. They've also got mm. fundamentally different cultural beliefs to um, the US and, and Britain in terms of the fact that they aren't quite so multicultural. They believe in this principle of licity, um, which is an incredibly difficult concept to understand if you haven't grown up with it. Um, yes, you can understand it and you can point at like Algeria and, and the, the way that, um, you know, racism is entrenched in, in French culture, but ultimately they don't believe in multiculturalism and this whole idea of, of the burqa and the burkini being signs of feminist oppression is, is, is kind of difficult for us to write off. So for the, for the Brits to kind of come in and go, here's some photographs, which by the way, we've staged to completely change Western um, French culture and make them feel a lot more vulnerable to future terrorist attacks because there were amazing pieces um, in uh, French and in the French radio, which um, talked about how these photographs are now propaganda for ISIS which is kind of true, right? Um, and it, it, again, was was proposed by the British. So that was one newsletter that we did that we went back and fact-checked it. And, you know, feel free to take a look at the website and, and look at the Guardian article and again and kind of rethink what it's saying. Um, so that's that's a very good example of where the Guardian hasn't potentially, potentially been as um, moral as you'd like it to be. Um, what else have we done? We've done something on why Putin, um, you know, is Putin worse than West, really? You know, um, why do Russians believe the way that they do? What um, is the relationship between NATO and Putin? Because we always think of Putin as taking territory, whereas actually there's a lot of examples of NATO encroaching on Russian territory since the agreements have been in place. Um, also things like Hong Kong and China. So you've got the Hong Kong separatists with China. Hong Kong's history is incredibly involved in British history as well. Um, does that teach us anything about Brexit? Um, just, just to put these ideas in people's heads, just to say, look, there are other cultures out there. But I'm also speaking to people who are Egyptian, who are talking about their relationship with Syrian immigrants right now because they're coming at a completely different point of view. Um, speaking to a lady about um, can we do something that's pro the burqa? Speaking to people about can you make an argument in favour of colonialism, which um, if you can do that, it's important. It's important for us to hear it. So. That's what the echo chamber is about. It's about taking these these deep founded ideas and ideas that are kind of taken for granted in many cases and then trying to go actually maybe see it from a different point of view. A, a more left wing example actually is also safe spaces. So um, we argued that safe spaces were actually a rational thing to have in universities um, a rational space to have in universities. So it's not all his right wing stuff. It's also it, we try not to have a bias. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Alice Thwaite, founder and editor of the Echo Chamber. We thank you for coming on Mid-Atlantic. Can we have you back? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Come on again soon. Yes, I'd love to come if if your listeners will have me and they don't think I've said anything too controversial. <laughs> so yes, I'd love to. Brilliant. Um, folks, um, this has been um, a special Mid-Atlantic. Uh, this week, you'll get in not one but two. Uh, we do have John and Rob also this week discussing Brexit and Trumpism. Uh, don't forget you can review us on iTunes to show us your support. You can follow us on social media where we are at Mid-Atlantic Show, specifically on Twitter. And we do have a dusty page somewhere on Facebook, which I don't really do much to. But if you want to go and like us on that, I'll be much obliged. Uh, thank you. I've been Royfield Brown. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Royfield. This has been Mid-Atlantic. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.